when I was processing through this, I was thinking about my kids. Uh, both of my kids are still pretty young. I've got a, a son, Josiah, he's 10. And I've got a daughter, her name's Janelyn, and she is seven. And I only bring them up because as I was processing through this, I was thinking about what is true for my kids and what's true for most kids, and maybe even for some of you adults in the room tonight, it may be true for you as well. But my kids still deal with being scared of the dark. Anybody else in the room still a little scared uh, in the dark? Maybe depends on what dark place you're in at whatever time that may be, right? Still a little afraid. <clears throat> my kids are still a little scared of the dark. Now, they're not crazy scared, but if it was their preference, they would rather not be in the dark. Now, I think one of the reasons is, and, and this is true of all of us, but when they're in the dark, they can make up all sorts of scary things in their imaginations, right? Things that in the light may look differently, in the dark look another way, and your mind starts playing some tricks on you a little bit in the darkness. Now, for Josiah, uh, there's one particular way that this always seems to happen, and it has to do with the closet that's in his bedroom. His bed faces his closet, and when he goes to sleep at night, he's laying in his bed, he's looking right at where his closet is. And so he has this, he has this routine where he hates for his closet to ever be open. And so every night before he goes to bed, I've been, I've been noticing it. I mean, it, it, it's without fail. Uh, you know, we, you know, we all have kind of a system that we go through at night when we're preparing to get ready for bed or whatever, you know, brush your teeth, put your pajamas on, whatever that looks like for you, right? Well, one of his nightly routines is he's going to make sure that his closet door is closed. And the reason's because when it's dark, his mind looks at those figures that are in the closet and he begins to imagine what kind of monsters or scary things might be in his closet. Now, <clears throat> I know this is certainly true for kids, but most of us can relate to this type of thing. Matter of fact, it may not even been that long ago where you were in your room and maybe you woke up in the middle of the night and you forgot that you had been vacuuming or something and the vacuum was like over on the side and it actually looked like a person and you were like, oh, oh. It's just a vacuum, right? No big deal, right? Or maybe there's that chair in the corner of the room that you always put your unfolded clothes on. That's me, by the way. And it is a chair with clothes on it, but at night when you're looking at it, your imagination makes you think that that's the devil coming at you or something, right? Now, I'm not trying to give you nightmares by any means, but that's the kind of thing that happens in the dark. Well, when my son deals with scary moments like this one where he gets me to come into his room because he's scared of something in the dark, we have a pretty simple solution to this problem. We just shed some light on it. That's what we do, right? Like, it may look scary in the dark, but as soon as the light turns on, we can see exactly what's there, and we're not nearly as afraid of what's happening all around us. The light shines the truth out of the darkness. Now, though this is a little silly, and I will admit with that, most of us have dealt with this with our own kids, or maybe we've dealt with it personally. But for most of us, we grow out of being scared of the dark. But I was thinking about scared of the darkness as it relates to us following Jesus. And I thought about how God continuously sheds light on our lives. You, you process this with me? Same way that our room can have some darkness and our imagination starts to run a little wild. Our life can have some darkness that the devil uses, right, to let our imaginations run a little wild. But I'm very thankful that God doesn't leave me with my imagination. 
Instead, he continuously uses different things in my life, whether it's his word, whether it's other people, whether it's certain uh, circumstances that I go through, whatever the case is, he uses those to shine light into the darkness of my life to teach me things that need to change. They say, Danny, why are you talking about shedding light on something? Well, because as I was reading in Luke chapter 7, I'm not going to lie to you, almost in tears a few times, I felt like God was shining some light into my soul saying, Danny, here's some dark areas that you've allowed to be something that they shouldn't. I need to put some light on them so you can see what actually needs to change. You know what's different though about God exposing the darkness in my life and me exposing the the scary looking monsters in my son's room when the light comes on? When the light comes on in my son's room, he realizes that there's really not a monster there. You know what happens, though, when God shines the light in my soul? The monster usually is there. And it's not something that my imagination has made up. It's something that God wants to deal with, and He wants to get rid of, and He wants to change. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, let me show you. This comes in Luke chapter number 7. This encounter that Jesus has with two different people. We're going to kind of walk through this, and I just want to show you a few light-shedding kind of moments that God did with me this week as I wrestled through this encounter. It's Luke 7. We'll start in verse 36. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him, now him is, of course, Jesus. He asked Jesus to eat with him. And when Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table, so he went there and decided to recline at the table with this Pharisee and whoever else he had with him. Verse 37, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table, when she learned that Jesus was there in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, I want to stop here for a minute because I want to show you something. I was reading this story, and in this early encounter, I discovered this comparison between these two different characters. One being a, a Pharisee, someone kind of more of an elite status who probably has a lot of things in life, doesn't really want for much, and is probably well respected in his community. The other one is a woman who, by the way, we don't know much about other than the description of her being sinful. A woman of the city. I'm not entirely sure what all that means. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this is the comparison that we encounter in the beginning of this story. Now, I thought this was strange for two reasons. One is because of the Pharisee character. If you look back, Jesus is with a Pharisee. The Pharisee asks him to eat with him in verse 36, and then Jesus goes to his house, and he decides to, as the Scripture says, reclined at table with this guy. Now, this is interesting for a couple of different reasons. Let me read uh, one thing that I read about this uh, verse that stood out to me from a commentary writer. Here's what he wrote. While Jesus' ministry of teaching and healing continued to ignite Galilee, drawing multitudes of followers, the Pharisees felt increasingly marginalized. This was their emotion toward Jesus. Every time Jesus exercised his divine authority, their credibility waned. Each time Jesus forgave a sinner, the religious leaders lost their power to condemn. He contradicted their teaching, exposed their pride and hypocrisy, rejected their interpretation of Scripture, exposed the errors of their traditions, and even ridiculed them as, as petulant little brats. I had to be careful there. Nevertheless, a Pharisee invited Jesus to a banquet. Now you said, Danny, why does this guy in particular stand out? 
Well, because we know, even in our early readings of Luke, that typically when you hear Jesus and you hear Pharisee, they are not best friends. They do not typically do things together. When we encounter the Pharisees or religious leaders or the scribes all throughout the beginning of Luke, none of those encounters are typically good. As a matter of fact, we first encounter Jesus with the Pharisees in Luke chapter 5. When several Pharisees and teachers of the law came from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Judea, uh, from Jerusalem, to hear Jesus teach. And while they were there, Jesus heals a paralyzed man that nobody else could do anything for. And what happens is the manner in which Jesus heals the man is questioned by those Pharisees and those teachers of the law. They claim, here's their statement, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And the tension begins to build between Jesus and the religious leaders or the Pharisees or the scribes or the elite. Now, just following this moment, Jesus calls Levi, one of the first disciples, to follow him. This guy, by the way, is famously known as a tax collector. This is, in their day, kind of the scum of the earth. Levi invites Jesus to eat at his house and invites a whole lot of tax collector buddies. What other kind of buddies would he have? Probably all kinds of other sinful people to come and eat with him and his guest, Jesus. Listen to this interaction that Jesus has with the religious leaders at this encounter. This is also in Luke 5. It says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then shortly after this, by the way, the tension is continuing to build. They ask Jesus a question about fasting because they don't understand why his followers do things differently than those who are following John the Baptist and those who are following the other Pharisees. Then when we begin reading in Luke chapter 6, some of the Pharisees question Jesus about laws dealing with the Sabbath. The first one is why his disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath. And Jesus is kind of clear, they were hungry, they needed to eat. What's the big deal, right? The next one comes when Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath which infuriates the Pharisees and the scribes because they think that Jesus has broken the Sabbath laws. And here's what they say after this moment. This is in Luke 6:11. But they were filled, talking about the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The tension is built. The tension is built. The tension is built. And so the hatred of the religious leaders of Jesus' day begins. Now, we're all familiar with how much the religious leaders of Jesus' day seem to hate him. The, the most famous uh, uh, part of Scripture where we see this is when they finally convince the Romans to crucify him, right? Like, I don't know how much more you could hate somebody than to want that to happen to them. And this has always been crazy to me because the ones who knew the Bible the most, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious elite, they should have been the first people to ex accept Jesus, but they weren't. They reject him. As a matter of fact, Luke mentions them, mentions the Pharisees 28 times and always as being hostile to Jesus. This is the kind of interaction that he has. We don't hear much about the Pharisees again until Luke chapter 7, what we're reading about right now. But the difference between the interactions with the Pharisees and Jesus and the interactions of the Pharisees and Jesus right here in Luke 7 is that this time it doesn't seem to be hostile. 
This time, there's a Pharisee inviting Jesus to come and eat with him. I don't know about you, but people that I don't like, I don't usually invite them to my house to eat, right? I don't usually open my doors to the people that I don't care about. So in this setting, this seems a little bit different. It's not the Pharisee at odds with Jesus. It's not the tension that's been built. It's not them wanting to kill him or shut him up. At this point, it's a Pharisee inviting him into his home. As a matter of fact, there's really only one other time in the Gospels that we find a Pharisee who cares to have anything to do with Jesus. His name's Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And even in that case, he doesn't want anybody to know. He finds Jesus at night so his buddies don't find out that he actually wants to know something from Jesus. They say, Danny, why are you telling us all this about the Pharisees? Here's why. Because when I'm reading this moment in the beginning of this encounter, here's what I will be honest with you about. I don't want Jesus to go to the Pharisees' house. I don't want Him to eat with those guys. You say, Danny, why? Because they're jerks to Him. They will eventually persuade the Romans to crucify Him. They're always seeking out ways to trick Him. And probably, even though it seems friendly from the context of what we're about to read, Probably this Pharisee doesn't care about Jesus that much either. And then God shed some light into the darkness of my life. Jesus loved regardless of someone's distinctions. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Jesus loves the self-righteous Pharisee. The guy that I'm sitting there thinking, Jesus, don't go into that house. It's like the scary movie, right, where they hide somewhere where you know they're going to get caught. Jesus, you're just asking for trouble. Everybody's screaming at the TV screen. Don't go in there. You're crazy. Don't open the door, right? Jesus, don't go into that house. But Jesus is different from me. I mean, we know that. He loves the self-righteous Pharisee. And listen, to be honest, we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus eats with a Pharisee because he's eaten with plenty of sinners. You get me? This guy may think he's elite, but we all know he's not. We've all been in those moments where we thought we were better than somebody else, and it is quickly reminded to us how far we actually are. But in this case, Jesus eats with the Pharisee. Now, I have to let you in on a little pastor honesty. Many times for me, it's easier to deal with broken people because to be honest, I just know they don't know any better. The sinful person who hasn't decided to follow Jesus, they're easier to put up with their mess because they don't know Jesus yet. You know who's hard to deal with their mess? People who've been in church their entire lives, who think they've got everything together, who think they're owed something, who think they got Jesus in the palm of their hands and they don't live for Him, He lives for them. Those are the people that are the hardest people to love Many times in ministry. But you know what Jesus does? He loves the Pharisee. Even enough to eat with him. I want you to see something else. Not only does he love the Pharisee, that by the way, I have a lot of trouble loving because my love is conditional, but he also loves the sinner, which is also a struggle for me because once again, my love is conditional. Look back at verse 37. Not only is he going to the Pharisee's house to eat with him, to recline at the table. Why? Because he loves the Pharisee. But also, listen, behold, here's a woman of the city who's a sinner. And when she learned where Jesus was, she goes to him. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of 37, Luke writes the phrase, and behold. Now, I don't know how often you use that phrase in your daily language, but if I ever come up to you and I say, and behold, here's what I can tell you. 
I want you to notice either what I'm telling you to look at or what I'm about to say to you. This is Luke's intro into something special is about to happen. Pay attention. You say, Danny, what is it? In the middle of a dinner with some of the elite people in town, a woman who probably shouldn't be there and certainly would never be welcomed makes her way through the house to Jesus. She's described by a simple phrase that probably means more than we will ever actually know. A woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, there's no definitive answer to what this phrase actually means. The text doesn't provide for us any more detail about the woman's sinfulness. However, most scholars speculate that this is a prostitute. This is also taken from what the Pharisee uh, the statement that he's going to make just after this verse about the type of woman that she is. But regardless of what we know about this phrase or whether or not she's a prostitute or not, I don't have any idea, but just let your imagination run wild for a minute for whatever you think of when you think about a woman of the city. I don't know that carries much weight for us, but just think about it. Now, let this particular moment in Scripture settle in for the type of love that Jesus displays. His love is unconditional. By the way, if His love was based on my current condition, at any point in my life, I might never experience His love. But Jesus' love isn't conditional. He is both with the elite and with the sinner all at the same time. And I'm presented with this wrestling in my own soul. Do I love the Pharisee and the prostitute? Like, do I love like Jesus loves? You say, Danny, what do you mean? He's eating with the religious elite, the snobs, who he knows, by the way. He doesn't have to have me screaming at the pages of Scripture saying, Jesus, don't go in. He knows what this guy's going to do to him. He knows what's going to happen at the hand of the religious leaders. Yet he loves him anyway. Let that settle. He knows this prostitute woman. He knows what she's done and what she will do in the future. Yet he loves her anyway. Jesus loves regardless of someone's distinctions. Hey friend, can I ask you something? Do we? Do we love like this? You say, Danny, what do you mean? Just, just for a moment. Just let God's Word shine into your soul for a second. That's what I had to do all week, by the way. Just let it shine for a moment. Is this the type of love that you display? Luke says, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brings this expensive ointment. She comes to Jesus. And I was thinking about this. Why would she want to be where Jesus is? Well, just for a moment, let's reflect on what Jesus has done up until this point in the Gospel of Luke. I'll run through it quickly. He's healed a man who's been possessed by a demon. He's healed a man with leprosy. He's healed a man who's been paralyzed for years. He's called a tax collector, another sinner, by the way, uh, a man maybe of the city, to follow him. He's healed a man with a withered hand. Matter of fact, Luke describes the ministry of Jesus like this in chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. 
And he came down with them and stood on a level place. This is Jesus with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. As a matter of fact, just think for a moment. Could it be that this woman in Luke 7 was actually there in Luke 6, and she's already been forgiven and healed by Jesus? Maybe she was there. Matter of fact, before we get to this moment, Jesus heals a centurion's servant, and he raises a widow's son from the dead. It's obvious why she would want to come to Jesus. It's possible that she's already encountered him and has already experienced his love for the world. This is probably why she would do whatever it took to get to the Pharisee's house where she would be most unwelcome. Think about this for a moment. Other men looked at this woman with lust, but Jesus looked at this woman with love. Who wouldn't want more of Jesus. You say, okay, Danny, we got it. I know. Jesus loves them both. He loves the sinner and the saint. Do I love those who are both near and those who are far? thought about passage of Scripture from Revelation when I was reading this. It's from Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Here's what Jesus said. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, by the way, he's talking about the Pharisee and the religious elite that thinks they're better than other people. If anyone, by the way, he's talking about the prostitute and the sinners who can't pick themselves up off the floor. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is Jesus. Let that shed a little light into your soul for a moment. Let me keep going. we got a long way to go, by the way. <clears throat> Let me go back to verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table, talking about Jesus in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. She comes to him with something so costly. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, uh, the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. And as I was going through this and I was reading again, I came to another part where God shed some light into the darkness of my life. Not only does Jesus love regardless of someone's distinctions, but Jesus loved regardless of someone's decisions. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, I think this can be seen perfectly in the different responses of the Pharisee and the sinful woman. They decided to respond to Jesus and this particular encounter differently from one another. As I read the responses, it reminded me a little bit of my own life and how I typically respond to Jesus. Look back at the woman, by the way, the woman of the city who's a sinner, 
who walks through the Pharisees' house all the way to the front where the, uh, uh, the leading guest of the house would be, and she brings an alabaster flask of ointment and begins in that moment to wipe the feet of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had to choose in the story who I could be, I want to be this woman. I want to be the one that nothing will keep me from Jesus. The guests don't matter. The location doesn't matter. The embarrassment doesn't matter. Nothing matters. She's going to Jesus. Now, let me just let you in on something for me. A lot of things matter to me. As a matter of fact, I get busy and I don't want to get that close to Jesus. I have the wrong priorities, and I'm focused on other things than Jesus. I get lazy, and I don't want to be with Jesus. I get selfish, and I don't want to be with Jesus. The list could go on and on for Danny. I'm glad we're not making one, but I can tell you I am oftentimes not the one who will do whatever it takes to get to Jesus, but that's not how this woman is. I want you to picture this woman who had every excuse to not go to Jesus, but none of those come close to the worth of actually getting to Him. The risk was certainly worth the reward. Matter of fact, she brings an alabaster flask of ointment. Now here's all we really need to know about this ointment. It's probably extremely expensive. In other words, it probably cost her a lot to offer this to Jesus. Now, no other gospel accounts have the parable of the two debtors like we read it in Luke chapter 7. But all the gospel accounts share a moment when a woman anoints Jesus' feet with expensive oil. That could be the same encounter as this one. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 12, he records it with the idea that as Jesus is entering into Bethany, he is being prepared for his death on the cross. And a lady by the name of Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Very similar account. The house, then, is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But I want you to catch this. Here's how we know the expense. But Judas Iscariot, which, by the way, in the story, none of us want to be him, right, for any reason ever, although we can oftentimes find ourselves relating to him. Here's what Judas does. Judas, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray Jesus, that's why we never want to be associated with him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge over the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. You know what Jesus is shedding some light on? He's saying there is nothing more important than me. Let the girl be. And so here she is, this expensive ointment. And Luke describes her as weeping, standing behind Jesus as she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, I'll be honest with you. I have no idea how to imagine this scene in my mind. It was obvious enough that this type of woman would not be welcomed in this setting and certainly would have already stood out in the crowd. 
Now, not only has she stood out because she's someone who's not welcome in the crowd, she's weeping and wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and with her tears and with ointment, and the fragrance now has invaded the entire room. It is obvious what's happening in this moment. Listen to this. Listen to this scene. Tears of gratitude soaked the Lord's feet as she sobbed uncontrollable, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Luke used the imperfect tense to describe her continual weeping, her continual wiping, her continual kissing, her continual anointing, suggesting that she carried on for an uncomfortably long time. Moreover, her actions depict worship so profuse and so unrestrained as to border on self-humiliation. In the ancient Near East, only the lowest slaves touched the feet of another, and almost always for washing. A woman's hair represented her dignity, and if married, she never took it down in public. So the woman's hair touching Jesus' feet represented the most extreme act of humility possible. That's the scene that's taking place. My guess is that Jesus is the honored guest of this feast, and she would have to walk past everyone to get to him. She's determined to get to Jesus regardless of who's there, regardless of who's watching. My perspective is this. What started as a dinner has now turned into a worship service. And then I thought to myself, how often do ordinary moments in my life turn into worship services? Based on this scene, how much is Jesus worth to me? Because listen, here's her response. Her response to Jesus was worship. Will my response to Jesus be worship. There he is, same room, same table, all these people around, enjoying company with Jesus. One person in there has found him worthy enough to be worshipped. She doesn't care what else is happening. She doesn't care who's looking at her. She doesn't care what kind of remarks are being made. She's been used to that her whole life. This is her chance to finally do something right. How does she respond in this moment to Jesus? She worships. But I want you to know the response of the Pharisee is very different. As a matter of fact, the response of the Pharisee resonates in a very bad way with my own soul. If you remember Luke 39, here's what happened. The Pharisee who had invited Jesus to the dinner, he saw this, and he said to himself, if this man, he's talking about Jesus, if he was a prophet, He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching his feet, for she is a sinner. His response is probably similar to mine will be a lot of times. Doesn't Jesus know that he shouldn't be anywhere near this woman? Why doesn't he get rid of her? This is the classic if-then kind of statement, what grammarians call a a second-class conditional clause. If Jesus really is who he says he is, then he wouldn't be associating with this sinner. And then I began to think about my own pharisaical responses to people and situations. And here's what's going through my mind. Who does she think she is to interrupt dinner with Jesus? Who does she think she is to be crying on his feet? Don't get your tears on the feet of Jesus. What's wrong with you? 
Who does she think she is to be causing this scene? This is my party, and Jesus is my guest. Get this woman out of here. And I don't know about you, but I feel like this is me when someone or something inconveniences my day with their needs. That's what I feel like. I feel like this Pharisee guy thinking, who in the world does she think she is? She doesn't belong here. She shouldn't be in my house. She shouldn't be up there crying on Jesus. I ain't got time for this. I got a million other things to do. I'd plan to get to this and to that. I can't be handling with that. You probably deserve what's coming your way anyway. You shouldn't have made that decision. Why you been prostituting? All these kind of things are going through my mind at this point, right? How often do I miss opportunities to praise Jesus because of my own pride? I don't even want to think about the many times I missed the chance to worship like this woman because I was focused on things that were much less important. Don't miss this. There were many people that were in that room. They, they were in the middle of a party, but only one person in that room was celebrating the right thing. Only one. It's this woman on her face crying out. Listen, his response is much different than hers. Hers was to worship. You know what his was? His was whining. That's where we find him. How often are these the two different types of responses we have to what happens in our lives? We can look at Jesus and the opportunities that He gives us and we can decide, will I respond in worship to Him no matter who, no matter where, no matter the circumstance, or will I choose to miss what Jesus has been trying to show the entire time because all I care about is me, because all I'm focused on is what I want, because all I'm focused on is what I need, all I'm focused on is my stuff, and instead of worshiping, I find myself whining and ugh, who wants to be? The Pharisee. You say, Danny, what does this have to do <laughs> with Jesus loving regardless of someone's decisions? Glad you asked. Don't, don't miss this part. <clears throat> Verse 40. All this has happened, right? Jesus goes to the Pharisee's house. He's eating. They're reclining at table. Anybody else think that's weird? You know what, it, you know what that looked like in their setting? They had like these pillows and they kind of laid on the floor with kind of a floor table. And they're like propped up and they're enjoying their time. I don't know how comfortable that is, but that's what it means when it says recline at table. Like, why does it even say recline at the table? Like, it's just a weird phrase, right? Just a little how they did things, okay? It's just interesting. He's there. He's eating with them, enjoying his time, right? Listening to who knows what from these religious elite when a woman busts in and messes up the entire party and nobody else can do what they planned. Nobody else can talk about what they were talking about. Nobody else can point the attention to them. The host of the party is not being paid attention to because this woman is over here getting her tears on the nasty feet of Jesus and wiping it with her hair. And now I can't even smell my food because all I can smell is this perfume that this woman brought in and it's all over the feet of Jesus. This is just inconvenienced everything for Danny. That's what's happening. Then verse 40, Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, I, don't, I don't want you to miss this because this is a fascinating moment. Jesus answering said to him, answering what? Nobody asked Jesus a question. Nobody said anything to 
Jesus about any of this. She's like, no, no, Danny. This guy said if you would have known, you wouldn't be like, no, no, this guy said nothing. Let me go back to Luke 7, 39. Don't miss it. Look at this. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself. You know what that means? This guy thought in the back of his mind, I can't believe Jesus would be concerned with a sinner like this. And Jesus answers that comment with one of his own. Answers what comment? Nobody said anything. Jesus knows everything about us. We don't have to say it. He knows. He knows everything about this fish. He knows everything about this woman. That's what makes His love even more radical. He knows everything about you and me and still chooses to love us. And Jesus, knowing what was in Him, says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Oh, this phrase just bounced around in my brain all week this week. Simon, I have something to say to you. I have something to say to you. You know what? I, that's all I can think about. How many times in my life have I missed it? You say, man, Danny, Jesus loves regardless of someone's decisions. I can testify to that more than anybody else. He makes no distinctions. It doesn't matter that I didn't come from the greatest place. It doesn't matter that I came from the worst place. He doesn't make distinctions. Both the sinner and the saint, both the far and the near, both the Pharisee and the prostitute, He loves all. But listen, it doesn't even matter what decisions we make. You say, Danny, what do you mean? I've made the worst of them. And you know what Jesus does? Listen, I make the worst of them, and then Jesus comes up, and this is what he does. This is what he does. Hey, Danny, I have something I need to say to you. Listen, how many times has that moment happened in your life? Seriously, you blew it. You messed it up. You could have worshipped, but you whined, and you should be kicked out. Jesus goes, Danny, you just stop for a moment. Calm down. You blew it. But Danny, I have something to say to you. Listen, don't miss it. Regardless of distinctions, regardless of decisions, Jesus still loves. Can I ask you this? Because I had to ask myself this for sure. How many times is my love based not only on distinctions, because I only want to love the people that I want to love, right? I only want to love the people who are good to me. I only want to love when it's convenient and comfortable. I'm like that. Jesus isn't. He sheds a little light into that darkness. You know what I'm saying? And then I think about this. I only want to love the people who make good decisions. I only want to love the people who do right. I only want to love the people who get it, the people who show up, the people who make it easier on me. I only want to love the people who make my life better. I want to base it on decisions. You know what Jesus doesn't do? He doesn't base the love on decisions. He loves regardless. And everybody in the room should say, thank you, Jesus. Do I love like Jesus did. This is the phrase, by the way, that keeps popping up as I'm reading through these verses. Let me, let me go, let me go, let me go. we got to finish. I'm going to go a little more on this one. We went just a little bit in the first segment and then just a little bit more in the second. We'll get a little further in this one, all right? 
So there it is. Hey, hey, Simon, I have something to say to you, buddy. You missed it, all right? And he answered, say it, teacher. Verse 41, watch this. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? This is the parable of the debtors. This is Jesus' story to help teach Simon a lesson. And Simon answered, verse 43, The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, Jesus said to Simon, You have judged rightly. So at least in this moment, I feel a little better for Simon. He's messed up everything up until this point. All right, man. You got one right, finally. Good job, buddy. He says, that's right, man. You have judged rightly. And then Jesus, I I, I love this moment. Watch this. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now this is a huge moment in Simon's life. Jesus, as he often does, uses a story or a parable to teach something important. There's a money lender who forgives the debt of two men. One owes 50 days worth of wages. That's what a denarii would be in their time. One denarii, one day's worth of wages. So one owes 50 days worth of wages, and one owes 500 days worth of wages. Now in the parable, both men were unable to pay back their debt. Also, by the way, both men were forgiven their debt. Now they didn't have to be forgiven of their debt. They could have been thrown into what was called debtor's prison. And he said, Danny, what does it mean to be in debtor's prison? Well, this means that you would stay in prison until your families were able to pay back the debt that you owed. However long it took, that's how long you stayed in prison. When the debt was paid back, You could come out, but regardless of the amount, both would receive the same punishment. Now, the application is pretty simple. The debt represents sin, and the debtors represent sinners. All are sinners, regardless of the amount of the debt. God is the gracious money lender who forgives the debt they could not pay. Now, watch this. If you identify with the man in deeper debt, you would view the woman with compassion. If you identify with the lesser debt, you would feel rebuked. Isn't it amazing how Jesus can take a simple story and make people on opposite ends of the spectrum feel the very same thing? You say, Danny, what happened here? Well, in this moment, God decided to shed a little bit more light into the darkness of my soul when He showed me that Jesus loved regardless of someone's debts. By the way, is that, is that true of us? Do we love people regardless of their debts, of what they've done, of what they owe? Both debts were forgiven, the greater and the lesser. But Jesus presents an interesting question. He says, which of them will love him more? And the answer is as obvious to us as it is to the Pharisee. He says, the one, I suppose, right? 
for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus is like, yeah, man, good job, right? You have judged rightly. Listen, he knows that the one who is forgiven more will be the one who loves more. The debt was paid for both men, but one of them was, was a debt that would have taken a lot longer to pay back, impossible to make right. And I thought about this. Let this, I need, I need a moment of preparation. Both were in debt. Both couldn't pay it back. Both would be in prison unless the moneylender forgave their debt. The one that was forgiven more would love more because the depth of his forgiveness was greater, right? Now, was really one of them greater when it comes to the sin of the world? Not really. This is where it gets beautiful. I want this to resonate in your soul. You ready? Is the depth of my love for Jesus comparable to the debt of my sin toward Him? Now just, is the depth of my love toward the Savior of the universe who could have thrown me in prison but forgave it? Is the depth of my love for that guy comparable to the debt of my sin toward Him? You say, Danny, what do you mean is it comparable? You owed a price you could not pay. Do you love Him in a way that you can't afford as well? Think about it. You couldn't afford to be free. Do you love Him? Do you love Him with that same kind of bankruptcy? You say, Danny, what are you talking about? Remember this woman? I don't know if you remember her, but Jesus does. He says, let me, let me help give you a picture of the depth that I'm talking about. He goes, look, the woman, Simon. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. You know what he's saying? Three custom, customary things for someone who entered a house, especially a rich house like this one. Water to wash their feet. In a wealthy home, by the way, not only would you get water and a towel, you probably had a servant who came up and did it for you. You know what Jesus says? I'm the honored guest of your house. I even wonder this. Everybody else who came in, I bet they got that treatment. You know who didn't? Jesus didn't. But even though he didn't get the customary water and towel and servant to wash his feet, this woman went way beyond that. She's now wet my feet with her tears, and she's taken her very own hair, the very part of her that shows her pride, that shows her distinct, that shows who she is and her dignity. She has let it all down before me and she is wiping my disgusting feet with her hair as she worships me in the midst of a party for someone else. He says, I entered your house and you didn't give me any kind of greeting. You didn't kiss me. You didn't welcome me. You didn't shake my hand. It's probably a little more comfortable for most of us, right? And Jesus goes, but not her. Listen, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since she got in the building. Think about that comparison. You didn't give me any oil to anoint my head. She brought what was most costly to her and she broke it open and she put it all on my feet and the whole place is filled with the fragrance. He says, look, you see this woman she knows the debt that's been paid and she displays it with the depth of her love for me. And he says, you want me to show you your depth of love? You gave me no water and towel. You gave me no greeting, no kiss, no handshake. You gave me no oil for my... You didn't even give me the customary things that you would give anybody who came into your house, much less the honored guest. 
she gave everything. Her dignity, her, her most valuable ointments, her complete humiliation as she is in front of the people who have always condemned her for the majority of her life, but she does not care as she continuously cries and worships and washes Jesus' feet with her hair. Contrast is incredible. At this moment, I think it's less about the debt of the two debtors in the parable. Clearly, Jesus is comparing his Pharisee host with this woman. Both have debt that can't actually be paid back. However, one of them lays it all down, and one of them may be thinking she isn't even worthy, even more than his feet. She can't even go anywhere else. That's as far as it will go. And when I, when I was reading this, I thought to myself, Simon thinks he's worthy to sit at the table with Jesus and the sinful woman knows that she isn't even worthy to, as John the Baptist put it earlier in Luke, untie the straps of Jesus' sandals. And I thought to myself, do you find that you typically are prideful thinking you deserve a seat at the table or are you more like this woman knowing how much Jesus has done for you? Anybody watch the National Championship Monday night? Am I the only one? couple people maybe for a few minutes and then it was over right maybe you watched enough to get to the post game I love what Kirby Smart the head coach of the Georgia Bulldogs I love what he said at, at the end of, of, of the game he was asked of course like he would be right they won last year they won this year so of course it's already hey can you do it again right like it's hard enough to win one hard enough to win two back to back can you three-peat right I mean golly the guy just won a national championship give him a break right now he can maybe sleep for a couple days okay and here's what he said I love what happened because they were like man how'd you do it how could you get them here they've already won how'd you keep them hungry and Kirby Smart said something that I think will stay with me forever you know what he said he said, our guys know how to eat off the floor. That's what he said to them. Now, mind you, I'm picturing Jesus in the, in the ancient Near East, and they really are kind of eating off the floor. But I'm thinking about this moment, and I'm processing through this, and I thought to myself, that is a winning type mentality. There are people who think they deserve a seat at the table just because it's owed to them. That's this Pharisee. Guess what? Jesus loves him. Then there's the woman who knows she ain't got no place at the table. She's satisfied with eating off the floor. Just give me the crumbs. That's good enough. I'll make it happen. And Jesus loves the sinner. And as I was thinking through that, I thought to myself, do I respond to my debt with pride, or do I respond to my debt with praise? Is my reflection on being the lesser in the debt category because I think I should have a seat at the table, or do I know that I should be praising at the feet of Jesus for forgiving a debt I could not pay? There is a clear distinction between the two. Jesus says, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. You know what I thought about? Both of them had sin that couldn't be paid off. Both of them were in debt to Jesus. That debt would need to be forgiven. One of them knew their sin and the other didn't. It was the one who sought after the mercy and grace of Jesus that received it. And I thought about these verses from Psalm 139. When David cried out to God, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Do I 
love like Jesus. Listen, Jesus is making a clear comparison. He's shedding some light, at least for me, into the darkness of our lives. Are we like the host of the party who thinks God owes us something, like we deserve a seat at the table? Or are we like the woman who's willing to throw everything down at the feet of Jesus? Let me, this is the last verses Jesus shares with us in this encounter. It's verse 48, Luke 7. He says, And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And I couldn't help but think, even down to the last verses in this encounter, Jesus has given opportunity after opportunity. He's taught a lesson. He's given another chance for people to see what's happening. He's given the Pharisees and the elite another opportunity. And even at the bitter end, when her sins are forgiven because she loves the one who she should love, because she worships the one who she should worship, because they've missed it the whole night, He gives even one more opportunity. But still, they find themselves saying, Who is this guy? Who is this that thinks he can forgive sin? The difference, the comparison as we can tell from their discussion, is that they missed it. And so Jesus leaves them with their pride, but leaves this woman with peace. What about us? Will we allow this encounter to cause us to love people like Jesus? Will we let the light that's shone into our lives tonight open our eyes to what God wants to change in us? Listen, I was reading this story. I'll be honest, I've read this story plenty of times. I've never really let it settle in. that these two characters in the story really aren't that much different. Both are in debt, in need of forgiveness. One cries out knowing that they were unworthy, and one continues to be prideful and leaves without the peace that Jesus can bring. And tell you something, friends, I never want that to be me. I want to eat off the floor. I want to be the one who's willing with my tears, with my, with my hair, with, with, with ointment. I want to be the one who's found, even in the most crazy of circumstances, worshiping Jesus when all else fails. I want to be like Jesus who accepts both. I want this story in my life. May that be true of all of us. I pray tonight God has shined some light into the darkness of our souls so that we can change what needs to be changed. It's just a chair with some dirty laundry on it. It's not what you think it is. Just let God clean it up as He shines light on the darkness of our souls.